Section 2 of the Letters of a Post-Impressionist. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Solog. The Letters of a Post-Impressionist by Vincent Van Gogh. Translated by Anthony Mario Ludovici. Section 2. Introductory Essay, Part 2. A vast and unprecedented revolution has been convulsing the art world for almost a century now. A revolution in which men like Gauguin, Van Gogh, Cezanne, Rodin, and others have fought like titans. Who has ever heard of a revolution enduring for almost a century? Even the Grand Rebellion lasted only for six years. And this revolution of art has seen its heroes and its traitors, its kings and its usurpers, its romance and its squalor, all beneath the very nose of the layman, all beneath the very walls of his fool's paradise, without his ever having suspected that something even significant was brewing. For art is always the expression of the most sensitive men of an age. They, the artists, are the first by their movements and by the manner in which they garner their treasure, to prophesy meteorological changes of a nature vast enough to shake even the layman into a state of gasping wonder. But, as a rule, it is only when these highly sensitive men have manifested their signs, and have more or less depicted the first lightning flash of the tempest that is imminent, that the sky really does become dark and overcast patently overcast even to the layman's eyes, and that the storm which they felt was coming actually begins to rage in the concrete world of politics and of national life. And then the pictures, poems, and parables, already stored away, classified and catalogued in public museums, are but the crystallized harbingers of a fact that has become patent to all. The general truth that nearly all the principal figures in this grand rebellion drama were themselves innovators, renovators, and subverters, does not in itself justify us in summarily disposing of them as noisy revolutionaries and nothing more. One can revolt against sickness in an age of sickness, and assume the title of a revolutionary or a rebel with both pride and dignity. On the other hand, a resentful valetudinarian who feels rebellious at the sight of sleek, fragrant, and rosy healthiness, may also claim the title revolutionary. But woe then to the age that allows itself to be lured over to his side by his intellect and his art. It is important, therefore, that we should know with whom we are dealing. We are aware that in the majority of cases, all the noise of this art revolution has been concentrated around questions of technique. The purpose of art was tacitly assumed to be to obtain as faithful a transcript as possible of nature and of reality, pure and simple. Not nature linked up with a higher idea, or reality bathed in the atmosphere of a love that transcended mere actualities. But simply nature and reality as they were felt by anybody and everybody. And the milestones along the highway, covered by this revolutionary band, do not mark the acquisition of new passions or new loves. 
but rather the adoption of new technical methods and mannerisms for accomplishing this transcript in ever more perfect and more scientific ways nature with its light and its atmospheric effects roused men like manet and his friends to heroic deeds of determination peasants innocent and unsophisticated seemingly belonging to nature and not to town or artificial life were included in the category nature from which it was legitimate to make a transcript cafe scenes scenes of town life glimpses behind the scenes were included in the category reality provided their artificiality and unnaturalness were mitigated by a certain character of which it was also legitimate to make a transcript and all this was done not because the peasant or the scenes from town life were linked up with any higher purpose or any definite scheme of life which happened to fire the hearts of the painters of last century but because as a matter of fact all life passions all life schemes were at an end and anything was good enough picturesque enough trivial enough for these artists whose general scepticism drove them to technique as the only refuge to tackle and to try their new technique their new method or new watchword upon light the play of complementaries the breaking up of light the study of values little things please little minds it was these preoccupations that usurped the place of the rapidly vanishing subject in pictures but what was the subject what part had it played it is true that the subject picture at manet's time was rapidly becoming a mere farce an empty page filled arbitrarily with any sentiment or mood that happened to be sufficiently puerile or at least sufficiently popular but it had had a noble past it had had a royal youth the subject picture was merely the survival of an age when men had painted with a deep faith it was the last vestige of an historical period in which men had been inspired to express their relationship to life by something higher and greater than both themselves and their art in fact it had always flourished in periods when humanity had known of a general direction a general purpose in life and of a scheme of life which gave their heartbeats and their breath some deeper meaning than they have at present the degeneration of the subject picture then into a mere illustration of some passing event or ephemeral sentiment had a deeper significance than even its bitterest enemies recognized for a while they as new technicians seeking light and complementaries and values deplored the spiritless and uninspired oleographs of their academical contemporaries they completely overlooked the deeper truth their artistic instincts were not strong enough to make them see that the spiritless and uninspired subject picture was the most poignant proof that could be found of the fact that mankind no longer possessed to any passionate or intense degree that which made the subject picture possible that is to say a profound faith in something greater and more vital either than the artists themselves or their art something which gave not only art but also life a meaning and a purpose this as i have pointed out elsewhere was the great oversight of the revolutionary movement in art of the second half of the nineteenth century in abusing the degenerate subject picture 
these innovators were simply inveighing against a pathological symptom in saying the subject did not matter they deliberately scouted the responsibility of eradicating or even of confronting the evil while in concentrating upon technique and in finding their inspiration in such secondary matters as the treatment of light values and complementaries besides revealing the poverty of their artistic instincts they merely delayed the awakening which was bound to come and which already today is not so very far distant the awakening to the fact that the artist the architect the painter the poet and the preacher are bankrupt unless some higher purpose and direction some universal aim and aspiration animate their age inspire them in their work and kindle in them that necessary passion for a particular type of man on which they may lavish their eloquence their chromatic musical architectural or religious rhetoric with conviction power and faith where does van gogh stand in this revolutionary drama which i have attempted briefly to sketch in the above lines without esteeming him nearly so highly as many of his most enthusiastic admirers do and without sharing in the least in that hysterical exaggeration of the value and beauty of his works which has characterized the attitude of large numbers of his followers on the continent an exaggeration which as i shall show he would have been the first to deprecate and to condemn i must still confess that as an impressionist a revolutionary of the eighties who to my mind strove to surpass impressionism as also so-called post-impressionism he is a painter for whom i feel a much greater respect than i can feel for manet monet renoir degas and whistler let me make it quite plain that i realize the superiority in some respects of the latter's art forms let me emphasize the fact that in my opinion van gogh was by no means so mature in his procedure as any one of these artists save perhaps in so far as his drawing far excelled renoir's but that his aims were higher and more vital that he realized more keenly what was wrong and what was desirable that he was a thousand times more profound than his predecessors of all these things after careful consideration and i must admit grave doubts i have at last grown quite convinced before proceeding with my argument let me lay stress on the point that i feel very little sympathy whatever with any of these impressionists art-form maniacs and their followers inasmuch as they obscured the issues at the very moment halfway through the last century when the issues were growing so plain that they must have found a solution sooner or later but if we are going to speak of preferences if in a gingerly manner we are going to put on gloves and draw out from among this crowd the men whom we feel we can tolerate most readily then from the sculptor rodin to his friend renoir of all of the names that are now household words in the impressionistic and post-impressionistic movement of the late nineteenth century i for my part certainly select van gogh and perhaps a little way before him his friend gauguin as the only two whom i can contemplate with equanimity not to speak of approval in judging van gogh one of the critic's greatest difficulties is in the first place to see a sufficient number of his pictures 
for he passed through so many phases that isolated examples of his work may prove merely misleading now thanks to the post-impressionist exhibition of nineteen hundred ten and nineteen hundred eleven in london the sonderbund ostelung in cologne nineteen hundred twelve and a visit to amsterdam i have been able to see about two hundred of van gogh's paintings and about a quarter as many drawings but when one remembers that the largest exhibition of his work which has ever been held contains some four hundred and fifty pictures alone not to speak of drawings it will be seen that to be acquainted with two hundred of his works is a long way from possessing a complete knowledge of what he achieved still the specimens i have seen i believe to have been thoroughly representative and in any case sufficient to warrant my forming an opinion as to his merits van gogh died when he was only thirty-seven years of age and emile bernard reminds us that though he always used to draw he really did not give his attention wholly to painting until the year eighteen hundred eighty two that is to say when he was fully twenty-nine years old about this time he writes to his brother in a sense i am glad that i never learned to paint i really do not know how to paint armed with a white panel i take up a position in front of the spot that interests me contemplate what lies before me and say to myself that white panel must be turned into something concerning two studies finished at this period he says i feel quite certain that on looking at these two pictures no one will ever believe that they are the first studies i have ever painted it is true that in the early eighties he studied a little with mauve who was a distant relative and later on spent some time at the academy at antwerp but on the whole like gauguin he was self-taught and when we reckon the number of years during which this self-tuition lasted we can but be amazed at the result and believe him when he says that painting was in his very marrow a still more remarkable fact about van gogh is however that during the last eight years of his life the only years that is to say in which he may really be said to have devoted himself entirely to painting whether at the hague drenthe nuenen antwerp paris arles saint remy or ouvert sur oise he practically epitomized in his own work the whole of the development of modern painting from the academical manner of his own day to a style which i maintain was on the point of bearing him far beyond the impressionists and so-called post-impressionists when i say far beyond the impressionists and so-called post-impressionists i do not mean it in the accepted sense of this phrase i do not mean that with gauguin he promised to land in any of the futile absurdities with which those artists that were hung beside them provoked the mirth of london at the famous exhibition at the grafton galleries in nineteen hundred ten to nineteen hundred eleven i mean it in this case as something peculiar to van gogh and gauguin alone something which i shall explain in due course and which i regard as valuable and worthy of a more sound artistic instinct than that possessed by all of their contemporaries i have myself seen pictures which i could not help thinking must have been painted in van gogh's academic period meyer Graef even thinks that van gogh's work of this period is likely to rise in public esteem i have little doubt therefore that van gogh did go through an academic stage however short 
and however undistinguished it may have been. And as for his purely impressionistic period, pictures of this stage of his development abound. The Moulin de la Galette, and a still life, basket and apples, in the possession of a Frau A. G. Kroller, the view of Paris from Montmartre, belonging probably to the family, and the wonderful Apples in a Basket, dedicated to his friend Lucien Pizarro, in the possession of Frau Kroller, all seem to belong to this period, and they are by no means incompetent or unworthy examples of the school of which they are examples. At this stage, he had the same contempt as all modernists had for academicians, and we find him endorsing Jacques's words that they are mere illustrators. It is now that he feels that light and truth and transcripts of nature matter tremendously. He says he is done with Gray's, and with Mauve and Israel's as well. He enters heart and soul into a study of nature. No pains are too great no sacrifices too heavy, provided only that he may become absorbed in nature and thoroughly at ease as her interpreter. Possessed as he was of a remarkable gift of observation, nature fortunately did not take long to tell him all that she has to tell the truly instinctive artist. For a man who could paint that still life apples in a basket dedicated to Pizarro, and the still life a statuette, a rose, and books, belonging, I believe, to Van Gogh's family, not to speak of dozens of other marvels of observation, such as the chestnut in bloom, belonging to Frau Kroller, in which the essential character of the tree is beautifully seized by the happiest of conventions, would necessarily be a rapid and courageous learner of all that nature can teach, and would soon become conscious of having reached that decisive Rubicon the imperative crossing of which means one of two alternatives either the continuation of the old attitude to nature which at this stage becomes mere slavery and no longer discipleship or the mastering of nature which is the first step that reveals the mature artist of sound instincts van gogh writes i do not wish to argue studying from nature or struggling with reality out of existence for years I myself worked in this way with almost fruitless and in any case wretched results. I should not like to have avoided this error, however. In any case, I am quite convinced that it would have been sheer foolery on my part to have continued to pursue these methods, although I am not by any means so sure that all my trouble has been in vain. So far, then, Van Gogh's sole excuse, and it is an adequate one, for having concerned himself wholly with such subordinate things as art forms and nature transcripts, is that he was a learner. A time comes, however, when in the case of the mature artist, we must take technical competency for granted. In greybeards, as many of the impressionist sculptors and painters grew to be, who continued to concentrate upon technical questions and to regard them as ends in themselves, merely reveal the fact that they never were artists at all. In this respect, I cannot help quoting some fine words of Gauguin's. Writing to Charles Maurice in April 1903, he said, Nous venons de subir en art une très grande période d'égarement causé par la physique, le chimie, la mécanique et l'étude de la nature.
les artistes ayant perdu tout leur sauvagerie n'ayant plus d'instinct on pourrait dire d'imagination se sont égarés dans tous les sentiers pour trouver des éléments producteurs qui n'avaient pas la force de crier the reader who is familiar with my aesthetic views will understand that i do not regard la physique la chimie et la mécanique as sufficient causes of this state of affairs nevertheless gauguin adds that the painters of this période de guerrement had lost their instincts and here of course i am with him the fact however that a painter or a sculptor has not lost his instincts is not sufficient to reform the civilization or the culture in which he lives a still greater and more powerful artist must set to work first and he is the legislator the most a painter or a sculptor of sound instinct can do is to recognize the lack of the great legislator and reveal by his work and by the things upon which he concentrates his mind that he realizes where the fault lies now i maintain that van gogh and gauguin took up this position but i am anticipating van gogh passed through another stage before he reached this final one it suddenly flashed across his mind that he had something to bestow something to bequeath and that an artist's life was not all taking robbing or copying he felt a richness in him which bade him dispense and no longer receive he writes one begins by plaguing oneself to no purpose in order to be true to nature and one concludes by working quietly from one's own palate alone and then nature is the result and again i often feel sorry that i cannot induce myself to work more at home from imagination imagination is surely a faculty one should develop and listen to this how glad i should be one day to try to paint the starry heavens as also a vast meadow studded with dandelions in the sunlight but how can one ever hope to succeed in doing these things unless one resolves to stay at home and to work from imagination he also begins to throw off the technique of transcript painting he recognizes that chiaroscuro with its essential study of values is part of the equipment of the mere slavish transcriptist and he writes it is impossible to attach the same importance both to values and to colors theodore rousseau understood the mixing of colors better than anyone but time has blackened his pictures and now they are unrecognizable one cannot be at the pole and at the equator at once one must choose one's way at least this is what i hope to do and my way will be the road to color and again tell him Surat, it is my most fervent desire to know how to achieve such deviations from reality such inaccuracies and such transfigurations that come about by chance well yes if you like they are lies but they are more valuable than real values these are the thoughts of his most prolific period the period during which he produced perhaps all his most striking pictures the last three years of his life such pages of beauty as the orchard in provence belonging to madame cohen goschalk bonger a street in arles 
in the possession of the municipal museum at Stettin, a street in Auvergne, belonging to A. von Jolensky, Munich, hail from this period, as also the lawn, probably in the possession of the family, a finished masterpiece of beauty, the sunset, belonging to Frau Tilla Durier's Kasserer, excellent, and a number of other landscapes belonging to Frau Kroller, Frau Malvener, Frau Cohen Goschalk Bonger, etc. All of great splendor and mastery. The fact that he was never able to work successfully from imagination alone proves nothing against the art of working from imagination. I have heard some artists argue as if their individual incapacity to produce great work from imagination were a sufficient proof of the fallacy of the principle. Such argumentation is, of course, beneath contempt. On such lines, any incompetence, impotence, ignorance, or incapacity could be glorified and exalted. Van Gogh, however, is more honest. He says working from imagination is an enchanted land, although he recognizes the desirability, the superiority of such methods, he feels that he is not good enough for them. He says, Others may be more gifted for the painting of abstract studies, and you, Bernard, are certainly one of these, as is also Gauguin. And he concludes by saying that when he is older, he too may do the same. End of section two. Recording by Elizabeth Solog, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania.